next several months, I want to try to, in particular, focus some of my lessons on equipping us as a congregation for the work of evangelism. Because if we seek to do the Lord's work effectively in spreading the gospel in this community, we need to realize that it's going to have to be a collective effort. We're all going to need to, to seek to prepare ourselves to reach out to those within our own circle of influence uh, and be equipping ourselves to teach our friends and our neighbors as we might have opportunity. And so what I want to do with some of my sermons throughout the next couple months is actually provide outlines that, that you can use in teaching your friends and neighbors that you can actually use in sitting down with somebody and studying with them. Many times we, we fail to ask people for Bible studies. We fail to reach out and be evangelistic because we don't feel like we're equipped. So I hope that these might at least provide one tool that, that you can use in seeking to teach your friends and neighbors. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, I think you can break it down into three categories. Convincing, convicting, and converting. First of all, convincing, we need to convince people of the truth of the gospel, appeal to the intellect, to the mind, so that we can create that, that belief or that faith within them. Convicting, appealing to the heart or the emotion, showing them their, their sin, their need for salvation, for what Jesus has offered. And then also converting, appealing to their will and showing them how they need to respond to the gospel. And so where I want to start in some of these lessons is with convincing, appealing to the intellect, to the mind, uh, proving the uh, truth of the gospel. And so I, I want in, in three lessons to talk about how do I know. We're going to talk about, in this first lesson, how do I know there is a God? We'll talk about how do I know the Bible is reliable? And then also how do I know the Bible is from God, specifically? And then, hopefully after that at some point, we'll move on to talking about convicting and converting. Uh, there's some lessons called uh, coming to know God. But before somebody can come to know God, they first of all have to believe that there is a God, that he actually exists. So this is literally square one. And not everybody that we meet on the streets is going to need to start here, but I think more and more in our society, this is where we need to start with people. I looked up online, and city data in the Pittsburgh area between 2000 and 2010 the non-religious overtook Catholicism for the leading group of adherents in the Pittsburgh area. So those who would register themselves as having no religious affiliation are now the largest group in the Pittsburgh area at just under 40%. Uh, nationally, in 2013, a Harris poll saw that 26% of our nation's population do not believe in the existence of God, or of a divine being, not even necessarily just the Christian God, but God in general. That's a fourth of our nation's population is right here. How do I know that God exists? And so we need to be equipping ourselves to start here. And if we are going to appeal to their intellect, convince them, it has to be more than just a, an assertion that there is a God. We have to be able to do more than it say, well, well, the Bible says. Uh, because the Bible 
points us towards evidence. Jesus didn't ever expect people to, to have a, a blind faith based on, on no evidence. In John 11, he said, if I don't do the works, don't believe. And so we need to be seeking to present the evidence, to prepare ourselves to make a defense for the gospel. And so as we talk about the existence of God today, I want to really just focus in on one passage of Scripture, and that's Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Here in context, in verse 16 and 17, he has said the righteousness of God, God's plan of justification of salvation, is revealed uh, through the gospel. But then in verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is also revealed against those who refuse to respond in faith. Uh, and then he makes the point that if, if we fall into that second category that is subject to the wrath of God, we are without excuse. Notice verse 19, he says, because that which is known about God is evident within For God made it evident to them. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. If we reject the existence of God, ultimately, it is not going to be because of a lack of evidence. Here, God says that if we reject uh, ultimately, the existence of God is going to be because of a, a willing rejection of the evidence, refusing to accept those things that are clearly seen in creation around us. Now, what are those things that are clearly seen? We, we recognize that if we're going to come to a personal relationship with God, and we're going to come to the point of salvation, uh, we need to turn our attention towards the Word of God. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And yet, he says that there are some things that we can know about God, even outside of him. There are some things that we can know about God simply through what has been made, through the creation around us. I want to focus on three things that he says here that we can know about God outside of the special revelation of his word, simply by looking at the world around us. Notice he says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature. I want us to see that when looking at the world around us, we can see God's eternal nature, his supreme power, and his divinity, or his position as God. So that's what I want us to focus on based on this passage this morning. First of all, when we look at the world around us, we can see that there is an eternal how do we see that? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity within man's heart. When we look at the world around us, and we see the, the suffering and the, the death and, and the sorrow, we naturally long for something beyond this life. In each and every person's heart, there's a longing for eternity. But the question is, is that an empty hope? Or is that actually grounded in something more definite, grounded in evidence to support our desire? For eternity. I'm going to start with the most basic of all scientific laws, the law of cause and effect. It very simply states that every material effect requires an adequate cause. We can summarize that by saying nothing comes from nothing. And this is something that we operate with 
day in and day out. That is it's self-evident. If you were to drive home today and when you got home, uh, one of your windows was broken, you'd immediately start making some conclusions about what caused that. Maybe if, if, if you saw a baseball laying in the middle of your foyer, you might make one conclusion about how that window broke. Or maybe if you saw some valuable things were missing from your house, you draw another conclusion. But none of us would walk in and say, oh, you know, that, that probably just happened out of nowhere. There's probably no cause. We, we always make conclusions about cause. If you see a, a grocery store um, show up down the street, none of us are going to conclude that it materialized out of nothing. We were going to conclude that somebody planned it, somebody built it, that somebody caused it to be erected. And so when we look at the universe as a whole, there must be some point at which this chain of cause and effect can't go back any further. There must be some first cause, some eternal self-existent cause that set our universe in motion. If everything has to have a cause, then at some point we have to come to some first cause. Another way that we could phrase this is if nothing comes from nothing, and there is something, there must have always been something. Okay? So if nothing comes from nothing, and very obviously there is something, there must have always been something. There has to be something eternal. What do we know about that eternal first cause? Well, is it physical or is it non-physical? Well, if it's physical, if the first cause is physical, it has to be subject to physical law, and it's going to have to be subject to the law of cause and effect. If the first cause were physical, it too would be subject to the law of cause and effect, and it couldn't be the first cause. It would have to have a cause itself. So this has to be a non-physical first cause, something beyond the physical laws of the the world in which we live, something non-physical, something supernatural. Even more than that, we can appeal to what is known as the law of energy. And I know some of this is going to get a little complicated. We're going to try to keep it as, as simple as possible. Certainly trying to explain this in such a way that we can explain it to anybody and everybody as we work with others. But the law of entropy, or, or the law, second law of thermodynamics, basically states that everything within the universe, left to itself, will progress from a state of order to disorder, from being usable to unusable. We can illustrate it this way. If, if you had a big bucket of sand and you were to pour it out on the ground, the law of entropy tells us that that sand is not going to magically form itself into a sand cap. If you pour it out on the ground, it's going to form a disordered mass. Because things tend towards disorder rather than order, unless some outside force is acting on. The law of entropy is going to tell us that when you drive home today, unless you stop at the gas station, you're going to have less gas in your tank when you get home than when you start. It goes from usable to unusable. And we see that within all aspects of the universe, in the universe as a whole. Everything is progressing from order to disorder, from usable to unusable. And so we can think of the entire universe as a giant hourglass, where at one point you have every molecule in the universe at the top of this hourglass, uh, where everything is usable and ordered. And slowly but surely, everything is progressing 
reports being disordered and unusual. That means that at one point everything has to be at the top of the hourglass, at one point everything will end up at the bottom. The universe has to have a beginning and an end. So both by the law of cause and effect and this law of entry, we have to have some non-physical beginning to the universe, something that is not subject to the law of entropy, not subject to the law of cause and effect, something that is beyond our physical world that could set our universe in motion. And so a physical universe has to have a beginning and an end. A physical universe cannot be eternal. The only thing that can be eternal is something beyond physical law. So only an eternal, non-physical first cause could explain the existence of our universe. And atheists, many atheists, will even accept this. I had a friend in high school who at one time planned to preach, and yet went off to college, and after three or four years, he came back a very outspoken atheist. And I sat down with him and, and discussed some of these things, and the way that he explained his view of the origin of the universe is he drew a big circle on a piece of paper. And he said, this is all that is, all that's in existence. Okay? And over here, he drew a smaller circle, and he said, this is our universe. Our universe is not all that exists. And then he started drawing a bunch of other circles. And he said, there are a lot of other universes. And they have different physical laws. And so, yes, while our universe had to have a beginning, you know, maybe the law of cause and effect doesn't apply in one of these other universes. Maybe the law of entropy doesn't apply in one of these other universes. So our universe started from one of these other universes in what he called the multiverse. Well, what is that? Tell? First of all, that, that's blind faith. There's no evidence for any of that. But, even he concluded that some non-physical, not inside our universe, first cause, uh, some eternal non-physical first cause brought our universe into existence. So even the atheists will concede, many atheists will concede this point. The question becomes not, is there some eternal non-physical first cause, but what is its nature? Is this first cause intelligent or non-intelligent? Is our universe the product of a powerful designer or blind chance working over millions and billions of years? And Romans chapter 1 verse 20 would tell us that we conclude there is an eternal power, not just some blind chance. We recognize that design demands a designer. And the, the Bible makes this point time and time again. Psalm 19, verse 1, David says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. In Psalm 139, 14, David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. When we look at the night sky, when we look at the, the evening sunset, when we look at, at outer space, we can tell that the order and complexity of the universe, the beauty of the universe, the demands some type of designer, demands some type of, of artist who could create all this beauty. When you think about the Earth and the specific angle of its axis, 
the specific speed of its rotation, the specific distance that it has from the sun to make light possible. You see that those things can't just happen by accident. There, there's a certain specificity and complexity to the universe that shows design. When you even look at your own body, and you see our ability uh, to see, our ability to hear, our ability to, to feel our hearts pumping blood throughout our bodies, our lungs filling with oxygen, our uh, ability to eat food and nourish our bodies, our ability to reproduce, all of those things testify to some design. Non-intelligence cannot produce intelligence. Chaos cannot produce order and complexity. Intelligence produces intelligence. Order and complexity give birth to more order and complexity. And this is what all of our experience testifies to. William Paley, in his work called Natural Theology, gives an illustration of a pocket watch. He says, if you were walking throughout the countryside and you all of a sudden stumbled upon a nice pocket watch, you picked it up, and you started taking it apart and looking at it and seeing the gears and how they fit together perfectly and how they work and the exactness at which it was able to, to click by the seconds, you would automatically conclude that there was some type of design to that. You wouldn't conclude that that just came out of nowhere. And we, we can even take that illustration to, to a much smaller level. If I came in to this building and I saw a paper airplane on the ground, I would immediately conclude that somebody made that paper airplane. Why? Well, because paper doesn't accidentally fold itself so specifically, uh, so symmetrically, uh, to fulfill a specific purpose to be able to, to have flight. Somebody obviously has a purpose behind it. If I can conclude that with something as small as the folds in a piece of paper, how much more should I be able to conclude that when I look at the human body, when I look at the universe and the way that it is organized? This is something that we recognize constantly and that we can conclude constantly when we look at things around us, that when we see design, we conclude a design. How much more should it be for the universe? If you look into the DNA of a single human cell, there is enough information in that DNA to fill at a thousand volume encyclopedia. I don't think that happened by accident, by disorder and chaos, all of a sudden producing this volume of information that we see even within a single cell. So, what argument does the atheist make? Well, evolution is, is the leading argument against this idea of an intelligent designer. And it tries to, to challenge this natural conclusion that design does, in fact, demand a designer by basically appealing to the random force of progressive mutation. Mutation is something that, that happens accidentally. Nobody directs it. it. It just happens on accident. And yet, it somehow works itself to progress, to increase order and complexity until eventually we have the world as we well, what kind of evidence can be produced for this argument? Ultimately, all evidence boils down to two categories. Either progressive adaptation or destructive mutation.
no increase in order and complexity by natural processes can be demonstrated. So let's give a few examples here. Progressive adaptation. Many times in uh, biology textbooks, you might see Darwin's finches or the peppered moths. Uh, illustrates that most of us are probably familiar with where natural selection so took something that was already present in the genetic code, something that was already there, and natural circumstances favored that characteristic to the point that it became dominant within that species. Uh, that's not an increase in order and complexity. Nothing was created there. It was something that was already present within the DNA. And it adapted, it used what it already had to adapt to that situation. There we see aggressive adaptation. No increase in order and complexity. No increase in design. Or, sometimes we see arguments from destructive, what is ultimately destructive mutation. Here, something new is created. Something new shows up in the genetic code. But, let me give some examples here of what I'm talking about. Sometimes evolutionists will try to show that a mutation was, in fact, progressive in nature, was, in fact, helpful uh, to the organism. Well, one example that I think is, is very easy for us to understand that, that we might use is that of sickle cell anemia, where people with sickle cell anemia are less susceptible to malaria. Now, is that a progressive mutation? Well, no, of course not. People with sickle cell anemia, their life expectancy is about 30 years less than a normal person. And yet, in this specific situation, we see that can prove to be advantageous. The other arguments are used with E. coli bacteria, where they develop some new function in, in specific laboratory conditions. And yet, at the same time, most of the other functions that they're supposed to be able to use were destroyed through the process. And so, even in the arguments that evolutionists try to make to show that there are some uh, progressive nature to mutation, boils down to the fact that, that even if something new is created, uh, more than not, it is destructive to the function and the overall health of that organism. You, you, you could think of it in these terms. It, it would be like saying that amputating your arm would be beneficial because it's more difficult to be handcuffed. That something very destructive in some specific circumstance may find some advantage to it. And so any argument that you might see is ultimately going to boil down into one of these two categories. Progressive adaptation, nothing new created, or destructive mutation, something new created, but in most situations being destructive to the organism itself. Now, if this was if progressive mutation actually was able to produce the world as we know it, how many progressive mutations would you expect? It's estimated that there are about 10 million species that have walked the face of the Earth. If there are 10 million species, let's say that it took a conservative estimate of 10 progressive mutations to create some new species. 10 progressive mutations for 10 million species on Earth 
That's a hundred million progressive mutations that occurred throughout the history of the Earth. You think we would see a progressive mutation right and left? You think we would at least be able to, to see one actually occur? And even if scientists could produce, say, four or five examples of the amount of evidence in compared to the, the amount of progressive mutations that would be needed would be next to nothing. It would be like saying that, that you found similar-looking fence posts in Canada and in Europe and in Russia, and so there must have been a fence that went all the way around the world. Uh, that's the amount of evidence that we'd be looking for. And yet, evolutionists can't present even one legitimate example of progressive mutation. But even if they could, the amount of evidence in comparison to what they're claiming happened would be next to nothing. But let's look at one other failure of the evolutionary hypothesis, and that's this idea of irreducible complexity. Many biological structures could not have evolved piece by piece over millions of years because they cannot function unless all the pieces are present at the same time. The easiest way to understand this is to use the illustration of a mousetrap. Now, a mousetrap has five pieces, and all five pieces have to be there to function properly. It has a base, it has a spring, it has a hammer, it has the uh, bar that keeps the hammer in place, and then it has a cache that triggers that. If you were to remove any one of these pieces, it would cease to function altogether. You, you remove the spring, it has no force. You remove the hammer, it has nothing to actually kill the mouse. You remove the base, you just have a bunch of pieces laying around. All of these pieces have a necessary function within that structure. Well, we see the same thing within the biological world as well. We can see numerous examples of different structures biologically that have to have all the pieces to work together effectively. We can talk about the bacterial flagellum, blood clotting, human eye, or even a giraffe's neck. We, we give numerous examples where these couldn't have evolved piece by piece over millions of years because you have one piece and it doesn't function at all. You have two pieces, it doesn't function at all. You need all the pieces working together to have any type of functionality. Let me just give one of these examples a little bit more detail. Let's talk about a giraffe's neck for a minute. A giraffe is a very large animal, a very tall animal, so measure up to 18 feet tall. With that type of neck, to get blood to the brain, you have to have a very powerful heart. If you're pumping against gravity. Well, what would happen when a giraffe kneels down to drink water, and the blood flow of its neck is no longer going against gravity, but going with gravity. Well, you might think that it would blow its brains out. <laughs> and naturally speaking, it, it would unless God had designed it. We see that what actually happens is when a giraffe leans over, the vertebrae in its neck have restrictive shutoff valves, if you will, to restrict the blood flow to the brain so that when it kneels down, uh, the blood flow is not as strong, and the last strong pump of blood that gets past those shutoff valves goes into a sponge right at the back of the brain that absorbs the last pump uh, 
grazes his neck, you might think, well, now it's not going to have enough blood to the brain. It's going to pass out as it's running away. But that's not what happens. What God has decided is that those shut up valves open back up. The blood flow continues, and that last pump of blood that was absorbed into the sponge is at that point pumped into the brain to make up for the restriction of the blood that had occurred prior. And so we see if, if you have one of those pieces and not the others, it's going to pass out, it's going to overload its, its brain with blood, it's not going to function properly. And yet, only if all those pieces are together at the same time is it truly going to function. Those things can't evolve piece by piece over millions of years. And so, the evolutionary hypothesis is a failed hypothesis. We don't see progressive mutations, uh, and we see structures that defy the force of uh, progressive mutation, even if they did truly occur. And so the origin of the universe must be a supremely intelligent and powerful design. Yes, design demands a designer is something that we should apply to the universe as a whole. Intelligence does not come from knowledge. Intelligence, order and complexity do not come from chaos and blind chance. Uh, despite their best arguments, evolution still comes up far short of explaining uh, the amazing design that we see in the universe around us. So, we have concluded there is an internal, non-physical first cause, that this first cause is supremely intelligent and powerful to design the world that we see. But finally, we can conclude that he deserves to be called God. The divine nature. That this creator of all deserves to be thanked. This creator of all deserves to be honored and worshipped as divine. As creator of all, we must naturally conclude that he is superior to all. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 as Paul continues here, he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. If we skip down to verse 25, it says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Um, if this being truly brought all that we know into then he deserves to be thanked, he deserves to be honored, he deserves to be worshipped, and to be served. We must give credit where credit is due. When we look at the night sky, when we look at the evening sunset, the, the ocean seeming like the grass and the trees, and even our own bodies, we should be blown away by the great power and the wisdom of our we need to recognize that his greatness far exceeds anything that our eyes have ever seen that he has created. His greatness far exceeds anything that our ears have ever heard, anything that our senses have experienced. His greatness far exceeds anything that we can comprehend with our finite mind. And so we need to honor him as such, but also we need to submit and obey Creator of all means that he has authority over all. If he created us, that means that we belong to him. 
That means he is the potter and we are the clay, and he has the right to mold us and use us in any way that he sees fit. He has authority over his creation. He gets to determine the purpose and set the standards for his. And so just by looking at the world around us, just by looking at the uh, principles of, of cause and effect, principles that design demands a designer, we can conclude God's eternal power and divine nature. So the question becomes for us, will we give God the glory that he deserves? Will we submit our lives to his authority and humble obedience? If not, we're told that we are without God has provided ample evidence so that we can conclude his eternal power and divine nature. We must make sure that we're not closing our eyes, not suppressing the truth, but that we are willing to submit the truth and give our lives over. So I hope these principles are helpful for you in, in teaching those who you may interact with. But more than that, let's make sure that we're applying this to ourselves. Let's make sure that we're giving the reverence, the submission, the obedience that this supreme creator deserves in our life. What about you this afternoon? Are you willing to submit your life to a God? There is a God. There is an all-powerful, all-wise God that he desires for you to serve. He created you for a purpose. He created you to reflect his image, to reflect his character. And when we fail to reflect his image, we have failed in the purpose for which we are created. We deserve to be thrown But by God's grace, he's willing to save us. He was willing to send his own son to restore his image within our lives so we could fulfill our purpose once again, so that we could give him the glory of you are willing to submit your life to him, we want to help you in any way that we can do that today. If you need in any way to make your life right with the Lord, we ask that you let us.